Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello, everyone. It is, we'll say six o'clock. It's only about seven minutes away. It is roughly six o'clock on Thursday, October the 8th, 2020. And it's time for this, the 89th trip, I believe. Is that what I have written down here? Yeah. 89th trip down the homeward path. And... What is Homeward Path? Well, I'm glad you. Asked. I'm glad I'm pretending you asked me. So I'm going to ask you some questions. Are you a fan of Magic: The Gathering? Obviously, so I guess since you're listening to a podcast about it. Is there something in your everyday life that takes precedence over Magic, even though you love it to death, you love it to pieces, sometimes quite literally? Partner children, grueling job or career, and yes, there's obviously a difference between those two. Are you still trying to improve at Magic despite everything, all the other stimulations and things you've got pulling you in a bunch of different directions? Well, if that's the case, I hope you got something lined up. I hope you got a I hope, you're, I hope you've got a lot of patience on your hands because we're about to play a control mirror. Oh, that was bad. We'll, we'll do better next week. But let's look at, after, after a brief message from our sponsors, let's look at the three Bs of improvement, budgeting, brewing, and breaking bad habits. Once we get all the shilling out of the way, a friendly reminder that we are brought to you by puremtgo.com. PureMTGO.com is one of the largest repositories for magic content on the web, period, point blank, end of statement, no qualifier necessary. It's just a, a large assortment of a lot of different kinds of content, and I highly recommend you check it out. And while you're there, you can check out their sponsor at MTGOTraders.com. They are the... They're my preferred vendor of choice when dealing with Magic Online and not just because they love me. (laughs) And, of course, don't forget to check out the Parent Network, ConstructedCriticism.com. We're still cranking this stuff out, you know. Pandemic, Magic's got a lot of stuff going on right now that a lot of people aren't happy about. We are soldiering on through. We make the content we want you to see, or hear, as the case may be. And while you're there, if you like what we're doing enough to help me keep doing it, patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg, you can become a patron like Brad from the Pauper Guild, who became a $1 patron this week. All of that out of the way. Let's dive in. First segment every week is our budget spotlight. Uh, What we typically will do is we will take a card at Uncommon, Rare, and Mythic, but this week we're doing a bonus because we're throwing in a common 
because I'm feeling generous and we're about to be talking a lot about counter spells and I know there's some people out there that don't like those. So we're going to talk about everything else first. For starters, at Common, I have Mystical Teachings. Uh, Mystical Teachings is a card that is very near and dear to my heart. It is one of the most iconic pieces of history in the Drago archetype in all of Magic. Uh, Being the card that was my gateway into Drago certainly doesn't hurt for me to want to look at it. But it's... Uh, three and a blue, instant. Search your library for a, for an instant or a card with flash. Reveal it, put it into your hand. Uh, flashback for five and a black. So, first thing on the notes, obviously one of the most iconic pieces of history of the Drago archetype in all of Magic. It can be very much built around in pauper and in more we'll, we'll say we'll be generous and say more casual modern metagames just you know Teferi Time Raveler puts the damper on a lot of things you would want to do with mystical teachings but if you don't have to worry about Teferi Time Raveler it's a definitely a card you can have some fun with there's a lot of cool stuff that it can go get and then the cost or the cast plus flashback, the ability to use it twice, also offers a ton of redundancy if you're interested in tutoring up instants or cards with flash in blue-black X in Commander. Because one of the key points for Commander is finding creative ways to get extra uses out of your cards. Flashback spells in particular are very popular. Because you get to do the, you actually get to have redundancy in a format that normally you kind of have to work for it in. But that's our common mystical teachings. It's it's just an all around like reasonable magic card. And frankly, the game needs more reasonable magic cards and less Omnath Locus of Creations. With that out of the way, let's move on to our uncommon, which is blood. It's actually a two for this week. Cards that fill the same role or at least similar roles, in Blood Chief's Thirst and Fatal Push. For the record, Mystical Teachings is $0.25, cents, Blood Chief's Thirst is $0.50, cents, and Fatal Push is $1.50. So, for starters, both of these cards deal with early aggression effectively with capacity to become more versatile as the game goes on. Obviously, they do it in different ways. They uh, just all around. Blood Chief's Thirst becomes more versatile as you hit land drops and you get to five, get to four mana. While Fatal Push becomes more versatile as you are playing effects that allow you to willingly sacrifice things. Or you can play into getting a Fatal Push where it trades one mana for four. Push requires more specific support, while Thirst, uh, Blood Chief's Thirst just actively wants a longer game. And most importantly, both of these cards are excellent additions to your pioneer and modern arsenals. The fact that Blood Chief's Thirst can hit Planeswalkers is relevant. Not the one-mana part, but the four-mana part, having some legs later in games, even in matchups like... Game one against Blue White Control and Pioneer, Blood Chief's Thirst feels a whole lot better than Fatal Push does. 
I don't make the rules. Them's just the breaks. But that brings us to our rare. And this is one I, I, I kind of waffled over two or three different options at rare before I settled on the one that has actively won me games of magic and there is no reason it should just be a quarter. And that is Crawling Barrens. It is a colorless land. So taps for a colorless mana. And then for four generic, you can put two plus one plus one counters on it. And then you may have it become a zero zero elemental creature. You may. Uh, for me, first and foremost, this thing gives off serious Raging Ravine vibes. Because the second, like, the second time you activate this, it's just Raging Ravine without Trample. Because it's going to be getting in there for four. And then six. And then eight. And then ten. And then the game is just over so quickly. Or it's just applying so much pressure alongside other threats. You don't have to expose Crawling Barons to removal in order to make it bigger, unlike Raging Ravine. Which is notable. Not having to, you know, it, it makes it a better creature land in your control decks because of it. Because you can just instep, pay four mana, put two counters on Crawling Barons. And they know that we'll get there. We'll eventually start applying a ton of pressure. It's also, not for nothing, it's another card that fits the toolbox of the colorless Eldrazi deck. I would play the fifth Crawling Barons before the first Mobilized District in, like, a Mono Red Eldrazi or you know, Simic Eldrazi or something like that in Pioneer. Because this card just clocks them so fast. There's so much pressure put on them. And the fact that the colorless is actively desired makes it even better. And then last but not least, we have our Mythic this week in Torrential Gearhulk. I don't know how many of y'all have played with a Torrential Gearhulk in your lifetime. Uh, for the record, it is four and double blue, flash five six. Uh, when Torrential Gear Hulk enters the battlefield, cast target instant from your graveyard without paying its mana cost. Exile that card if it would, or exile and then exile it instead of putting it into its owner's graveyard. So there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, flash cures a lot of what ails Torrential Gear Hulk. For the record, the price on Torrential Gear Hulk is $5. Somewhere around $5. Flash cures a lot of what ails it, because normally you don't want to tap 6 mana in your control deck, but with Torrential Gear Hulk, you don't have to do it on your own turn, which is so nice. So nice. Casting any instant on ETB is huge super big game unreasonably big game any instant just any of them let's let's run through some instants like this card was one of the most played finishers in its time in standard to the point that it was splashed into the sideboards of 
uh, mid-range decks. Sorry, flaked out there for a second. Splashed into the sideboard of mid-range decks to rebuy some just removal spells. Like it was casting harness lightnings and a braids, and it was really, really good. Like if the worst thing you spend six mana on is kill your creature and make a five-six. It's pretty high floor. But the upside in Pioneer especially is when you start looking at some of the instants you have access to there. Oh my word. Uh, Dig Through Time is an instant that can be cast from your graveyard via Torrential Gearhawk. Fall free. A lesser known, much lesser loved, but effective combination card with it nonetheless if we're looking at a format like commander where you want to play big splashy effects into the story is draw four cards and an instant so you can hit it off your torrential gear hole you can even aggressively discard it early in the game just to get it back with your gear hulk later Even in its time in Standard, it was used alongside Glimmer of Genius and Hieroglyphic Illumination. You know, scry two, draw two, get two energy, or draw two and cycle for a blue. So you would frequently aggressively cycle off your Illuminations early in the game with the understanding that you were going to gear hulk back one or two of them later. Because it was really, really, really good. So... All the way around, like, Torrential Gear Hulk is just a reasonable, reasonable magic card. And definitely something worth getting into. It's just a great tool for Pioneer, even in Modern, where you can play big, powerful, splashy instants with the expectation of them either getting milled by Thought Scour, uh, discarded for other card effects, so on and so forth, for the express purpose of gear hulking them back late and then you look at commander like there's i'm sure some busted instance i've never thought about trying to play alongside torrential gear hulk like dig through time is as far as my busted meter went so giving me access to more would be utterly horrifying but I say all of that to dive in to this week's main topic, which I titled, My Hand Says No. <laughs> uh, and it begins with the first segment of the, the topic, which I titled, My Brief History of Denial. <laughs> Definitely not telling on myself today at all. Um, but, from... For those of you who have been listening for a while, you know I started playing Magic in 2004, started playing Standard in 2005, but I didn't experience my first Drago deck until 2006, was uh, the release of Time Spiral, which ironically enough gave us Mystical Teachings, Teferi, Mage of Jalfir, and we had a lot of soft counter spells in Standard. So, the deck actually made its debut in at Worlds that year, 
Uh, everybody, everybody was terrified of the Dragonstorm deck. Everybody was terrified of the the Boros Aggro deck. And at the end of the day, the deck that caught my eye largely because I just happened to have most of the cards that I I would need for it was piloted by none other than Guillaume Wafotapa, who built his deck and referred to it as Dralnu Daluv. And I'm sure I butchered that pronunciation, and I apologize to anyone I may have offended with that. But what that deck showed me is what dedication to a theme can accomplish. Because that deck played no less than 16 counterspells, no board sweepers, and every single card, if you played correctly, could be cast at instant speed. Literally all of them. Because you could teachings for your Teferi who had flash, and then Teferi Mage of Jalfir is two blue 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 for a three four that said uh, creatures you own that are not in play have flash. Which meant now in your library, mystical teachings could go find you another creature. Frequently, early on, it was combined with Skeletal Vampire. Eventually, it was combined with Vesuvian Shapeshifter and Brine Elemental, and it became the Pickles deck, wherein you would lock your opponent out of untapping ever again at instant speed during, like, it was just phenomenal. It was unreasonable how good this deck was at what it did, which was denying your opponent the capacity to play Magic in, in ways that they wanted. Now, you could get under it. They had, they were very noticeably, if you're playing 26 lands and 16 counterspells and, you know, some think-twices and some mystical teachings and some creatures, you didn't have a lot of room for anything to interact on the battlefield. So you could get bullied by Mono Red and Boros and just the, the aggressive red decks as a general rule. But it was a trade-off you were willing to do because you were so good against the Dragonstorm deck. Because you could make them fight over a Lotus Bloom on their combo turn. And then they wouldn't be able to kill you. Sometimes you would play Teachings. You would splash, you know. You would play Dreadship Reef and Watery Grave to splash Mystical Teachings, the flashback portion, into a blue-red control deck so that you could play the flashback on Mystical Teachings to be able to go get... Like, Mystical Teachings would be able to go get you Bogart and Hellkite whether you had Teferi or not. Mystical Teachings ended up making its way into uh, Triscuitron at some point at least in our group, wherein you would be able to use teachings to go get your win conditions in your blue Tron deck. And we had Signets to help smooth over the extra blue mana. Um, actually, I think we ended up playing Prismatic Lens in the deck to help smooth over the mana. But, you know, that was probably the Drago deck that I played for the longest period of time and had the most iterations, including a combo control variant, 
wherein we combine Nibmizit, the fire mind, with Ophidian Eye. We could teachings for Nibmizit at an instep with uh, Teferi on the battlefield. We could flash back the teachings to go get uh, Ophidian Eye, flash in the Nibmizit the next turn, untap, cast Ophidian Eye, targeting Nibmizit, and draw our library, killing our opponent in one fell swoop. Because Ophidian Eye said whenever you deal, whenever the enchanted creature deals damage to a player, draw a card. And Nibmizit says you can tap to draw a card, and whenever you draw a card, deal one damage. Similar to Nibmizit Parun, who actually still works with that combo for interested parties looking for something wild and wacky and zany and probably not good enough to do in modern. But that brings me to 2008-2010. I didn't actually get to play fairies, but I sure played against it. My buddy Mike played fairies from release day until the day it rotated out of standard. He had fairies built, and more often than not, he played them for local tournaments. He even played them in the extended format, the, the precursor to modern, without black mana for Thoughtseize or Bitter Blossom. He was just mono blue, flashing stuff in on your turn. And what fairies taught me about Drago was you married the flash tribal approach, playing primarily on your opponent's turn, to an entire tribal archetype that allowed you to do that. To obviously great success. Because, I mean, if, if fairies was a dominant deck the way it was then today... They would have banned Bitter Blossom and likely would have banned Mistbind Click. Because both of those cards were unreasonably powerful. Uh, Bitter Blossom would snowball out of control. The fact that it was tribal stamped allowed it to combo well with every other card in your deck. It was a fairy you could reveal for Secluded Glen at absolute worst. And it was just an insurmountable advantage to a lot of decks. Like, turn one Thoughtseize, turn two Bitter Blossom was just the death knell for many a deck during that standard format. But after those two sorcery speed plays, they were all instants and flash creatures. Spellstarter Sprite. Scion of Una, Mistbind Click. Widwin the Biting Gale, sometimes... Rune Snag, Cryptic Command, Ancestral Vision in the Time Spiral era, Agony Warp once Time Spiral rotated and we got Shards of Alara. You know, removal, everything. That brings us to 2011 where we got to see another arc, uh, macro archetype combined into Drago from my perspective and that was Splinter Twin. We combine full-on combo, like actually good enough combo, with a Drago control shell. In this case, it was because I couldn't afford to play Jace the Mind Sculptor, so I just played a whole bunch of counter spells, like a whole lot. I believe we played Inquisition of Kozilek in that deck. We were a blue-black control deck that splashed Splinters with. But by and large, like, the deck was just really good. 
we played a lot of instant speed answers. We played a handful of other threats that would work in conjunction with the Splinter Twin. It was just a, it was a sweet deck. And of course, we cheesed more than a few people out by just going turn three, flash in Deceiver Exart, on tap turn four, Splinter Twin, kill you. Do you have it? Like, do you have the thing or not? And then in between, Splinter Twin was actually one of the last standard decks I played before I took my break from Magic. And when I came back, one of the first decks I played in standard after the break, it was probably the third deck I played in standard after the break, was Teamer Tower, which was a necessary evil, and it was a, a deck that took advantage of a inbred metagame. That metagame was Mardu Vehicles or Four Color Copycat. That was the entire metagame. If you weren't playing one of those two decks, you weren't trying hard enough, or you had to have a really, really good reason. And in our case, we were playing Teamer Tower because it gave us a control deck that could match the, the mid-game power cards of both of those decks. Along with access to Dynavolt Tower, which would sit on the battlefield and invalidate the cat combo. Because you would be able to roast the Sahili in response to the Philidor Guardian entering the battlefield. You had an onboard answer to the combo, and then the rest of your deck was just a control deck, which was a good matchup against their value mid range backup plan. Same goes for that matchup against Mardu Vehicles. Like, they were primarily tuned to beat the copycat decks, and they were not built with you in mind at all. So your Dynavolt Towers had plenty of things to shoot down and kill, and then when they sideboarded out a bunch of removal, you could sideboard in Long Tusk Cubs and Whirler Virtuosos and just beat them to death. But summer 2017, once we got Amonkhet and Our Devastation, I actually played another look at Drago. I had uh, one copy of a spell that I intended to cast on my own turn, or one copy of a threat that I intended to cast on my own turn, and two copies of a board sweeper that I wanted to cast on my own turn. The threat was the Scarab God, because come on, why wouldn't it be? And the board sweeper was Hour of Devastation. Five damage to all creatures and non-Bolas Planeswalkers. And permanents lose indestructible until end of turn. So it's just get everything out of here. Let's get caught up. And then we were largely a blue-red control deck that just splashed the Scarab God. So Magma Sprays, Abrades, Harness Lightnings... Glimmer of Genius, because the energy from those would power up Aether Hub to help fix mana. Uh, hieroglyphic Illumination, Torrential Gear Hulk, like all the trappings of a reasonable blue red draw go deck. And lots of counter spells. 
And in particular, Commit to Memory was a really good combination with Torrential Gear Hulk because you could target the whole card with Gear Hulk in the graveyard and then choose which half you cast with it on the stack. You could cast the memory with Torrential Gear Hulk, which was really cool. And then from 2018 to 2020, I played various versions, various variations on Simic and Is It Flash basically all the way through. I mean, there was there was that little bit of time in Ravnica Standard where I played a lot of Mono Blue and Demir and Is It Tempo, which is just a different archetype. But a lot of what I played, a lot of what I worked on were various builds of like Flash and Drago decks. So why do we want to look at Drago now? Well, first and foremost, Standard has once again found itself under the thumb of powerful mid-game threats. Omnath Locus of Creation. Embercleave. I know there's... Uh, Winota, Joiner of Forces. Torbrand. I mean, you look at the control decks that exist currently, Shatter the Sky. Fordrop. Omnath, Locus of Korea. I can't really bring that one home enough. That one's really, 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 probably too good. The deck's designed to prey on these mid-range slash value shells that are overwhelming the format are reasonable matchups for a deck that just says no a bunch. Like... The aggro decks that exist in standard can apply a ton of pressure and feel very, very much reasonable. But a lot of their success is predicated on your opponent not having disruption. You know, if you counter the Embercleave or you counter the Torbrand, kill the Akum Hellhound early, it's hard for them to consistently generate pressure. And then you got decks like Selesnya Counters that are really good at building a big board that's hard for these other decks to, to keep pace with. And in this case, the Demir Drago deck has access to lots and lots of removal and counter magic to both keep from falling too far behind and start to pull ahead in the mid game by double spell, which is exactly what Drago wants to do. Between main deck and sideboard, we have reasonable access to answers to just about anything. Obviously, we have difficulty answering an on-the-battlefield artifact, and there is exactly one card that lets us choose which on-the-board enchantment we deal with. And we're not playing. But most importantly, and the biggest reason to look at this deck right now, is you go into every matchup with a different goal than your opponent. Your game plan is, strictly speaking, wildly different than what your opponent wants to be doing. Your opponent's coming in looking to leverage these powerful proactive cards, cards like Omnath, cards like Genesis Ultimatum, cards like Escape to the Wilds, Lucky Clover, uh, Granted, to go get more powerful cards. They're trying to win the game. 
As a Drogo deck, you have a completely different mentality. Your goal is not to win the game. Your goal is to not lose the game. That's what you're playing for. You're not aggressively trying to play to win. You're trying to not lose. And that that psychological difference between what you're doing and what your opponent is doing can make all the difference in the world. The best example I can give goes all the way back to Star Trek The Next Generation. And I this is a wild tangent, but it's a good one. Wherein Data was having trouble in a, in a strategy game against a War Games expert that had joined the Enterprise for this week's episode. You know, Data was really, really good at the game because of his, you know, cold android intellect at devising tactics and strategies. But he got beat by the other guy because the other guy had a superior tactical mind. The other one was able to quickly seize decisive victory from Data when they were both going after the same things. So when they rematched, Data played a different plan. Instead of trying to aggressively go after the victory, Data sat back and played the game with the with a draw as his end goal. He wanted a stalemate. And his adversary eventually got up in frustration and left the room. And that's the power of playing with a different goal than your opponent. It's very similar here. We're looking to lose in the short term, lose resources, lose pace, lose ground in the early game. But in exchange, we want to be able to cut off our opponent's avenues to victory. It doesn't matter if they hurt us as long as they don't kill us. So let's dive into our card choices. Turn on a little light here. Sorry. I mean, nobody's watching, strictly speaking, or listening, but still. I categorize these by the roles they play in the deck. This is a standard blue-black Drago control deck. There are a total of six cards that we intend to cast at sorcery speed. None of those appear in Category 1. Category 1 I titled How We Find It. How We Find the Things We Need to Survive. We're playing four copies of Solundi Vision, two copies of End of the Story, and one copy of Thirst for Meaning. Of these slots, I'm the most rigid on playing four copies of Solundi Vision. For two reasons. One, it's a flip land, and we'll understand why in a little bit why I don't want to cut any of those. But two, it's just a really, really good card selection spell. It looks six cards deep for three mana at instant speed and finds an instant or sorcery. Notable because all of our flip cards that we're playing, all of our flip, our uh, modal double-faced cards, I'm going to call them flip cards, I'm going to call them spell lands, whatever you want to call them. All of the ones we're playing in here are instants or sorceries. Most of them are instants. Actually, yeah, all of them. All of the flip cards we're playing are instants. 
which means we can Salundi vision to find a land, which is really valuable here. Uh, End of the Story was a card I chose because I've had success with it in the past in similar shells, where I was buying all the way in on making one-for-one exchanges early in the game. Instead of trying to pay it off by playing a bunch of little two-for-ones, I chose to try to pay it off by playing two big four-for-ones. So that rather than try and nickel and dime your way through the mid-game, you try to get one big shot of it in the mid-game and just bury your opponent. We don't we're not constructed to try to make into the story into a four drop as quickly as possible. We're not playing mill. It is a seven drop that is sometimes conveniently a four drop. Please do not get that twisted. It's a very important distinction to make. And I chose instance for all of these card draw abilities over cards like Maze Mind Tome or uh, See the Truth or, you know, Boon of the Wish Giver that you can cycle away if you can't cast it. I chose instance for the ability to find them with vision. I chose instance over Maze Mind Tome, Omen of the Sea things of that nature because you can't find Maze Mind Tome or Omen of the Sea with Salundi Vision. And sometimes you have to look six cards deep to find a draw spell. It's just a thing you have to do. Thirst for Meaning was chosen as a way to uh, you know, draw three, discard two is the most by far the most common mode on this and sometimes you are going to be flooding out and you need to find action. An, an acceptable deviation from that would be um, Reign of Revelation, which is three and a blue, draw three, discard one at instant speed. But I chose Thirst for Meaning because of the ability to cat, to double spell earlier in the game. Just the, the fact of the matter is it double spells earlier both of them dig three cards deep. You are frequently going to have some dead cards in your hand. It's just a really good all-around way to catch you up. Now we have how we stop it. Our counterspell suite. We're playing four copies of Mystical Dispute, three copies of Jawari Disruption, two copies of Neutralize, and two copies of Essence Scanner. That is good for 11 counterspell effects. I didn't want to go all the way overboard and start flirting with the number 20 on counter spells and just get bullied by the counters deck because I couldn't kill their creatures. You know, I was playing too many card draw spells and counter spells and not enough removal and then I just get beat up by the creature that sticks. And quite frankly, there are too many things in the format that punish counterspells. You know, Cunning Nightbonder out of the Rogue's deck is something that will punish playing too many counterspells. 
So in particular, Jawari Disruption and Neutralize can both be not counter spells when they've been invalidated. Jawari Disruption can be extra land drops or discarded away to uh, Thirst for Meaning. Neutralize can be cycled to find a removal spell. And then Essence Scatter is more removal spell than a counter spell, but sometimes you cannot let your opponent's ETBs happen. You just have to stop it before it gets on the battlefield. That's okay. Essence Scatter's got your back. It's not pretty, it's not sexy, but it does its job. Then we have how we remove it. As far as how we stop it, uh, I could be talked into doing or dropping a dispute for another hard counter, but I really, really like Mystical Dispute and Standard right now. Uh, Mystical Dispute countering two of the two of the three most powerful cards in the various versions of the Omnath deck. Countering Omnath itself and Genesis Ultimatum, unless they pay three for one additional mana. One mana to counter Omnath or Genesis Ultimatum, unless they pay an extra three. Omnath is typically just going to get attempted to be jammed down our throats on turn four. We're just like, no. But even like the format as a whole, it counters Teferi Master of Time for one mana. It counters Granted for one mana. <laughs> or keeps them from being able to cast the card they granted for on the same turn. Which is more of a blowout than it seems like. Um, and Jawari Disruption just plays like a better sensor. Sensor being one in a blue, counter target spell, its controller pays one, and then it would cycle for a blue. Meaning you still had to play lots of lands in order to hit your land drops, and you would frequently sensor to find a land if your opponent played around it. Well, now your sensor just comes with a land attached to it. You don't have to cycle it to find one. You've already got it in your hand. That's big game. That's mega, super, ultra, huge game. <laughs> Cannot be overstated how valuable that kind of utility is. Next up, uh, and when it comes to, you know, essence scatter, I could be, I could also see splitting hairs and going one scatter, one negate with the other copy of each in the board for the ability to kind of be a general purpose Swiss Army Knife game one and then board more specifically. Or in the appropriate matchups where the tempo swing is really important, being able to board up to all four. Spoilers, we still can. I favor scatter because the creature decks are going to be more prevalent, especially on the ladder where players are just trying to get in their quick games, you're going to see a lot more of the aggro decks, the rogue decks, and Scatter is just a strictly superior magic card in those matchups. But how we're removing it. Three copies of Blood Chief's Thirst, three copies of Eliminate, two copies of Heartless Act, one copy of Hagara Mali, and three copies of Extinction Event. All of this is very important. These numbers reflect the amount of respect I have 
for these fast aggro decks and these these just low to the ground creature decks that exist in the standard format right now. You know, they banned Uro, so those matchups are not just a strict buy for the Omnath decks anymore. They absolutely can win those matchups, and it's not as hard as it should be. But these numbers respect our softness to fast aggro or mid-range. If they get on the board too early, we are going to get beat down because we've got to find answers, and they just have to keep throwing threats at the table. That's not great for us. Um, a large percentage of our sideboarding changes are ins and outs with the counterspell suite and the removal suite. Other considerations for slots in the removal spells were Eat to Extinction, Into the Royal, and Murderous Rite. Eat to Extinction is more expensive but more versatile. It exiles a creature or planeswalker for three and a black, and then you functionally surveil one. You look at your top card, you can leave it or put it in the graveyard. You know, tack on card selection instead of gain two life to Vraska's Contempt for an easier mana cost. I can I can get behind it. I just ultimately wanted to err on the side of a streamlined mana curve. Notably, all our all our spot removal spells, Thirst, Eliminate, and Heartless Actor, all two mana or less early in the game. With Thirst able to punch up as a four drop later and be just a you know, get that thing off my table. Thirst being one of our six cards we want to cast at sorcery speed. The other three being the three copies of Extinction Event. Because Extinction Event is still the best sweeper in standard. But End of the Royal is another one I could be talked into because it's a tempo swing. It's uh, a card you can use to bounce powerful things out of the way. But ultimately, I think I'm saving that one for another standard shell that I'm going to be working on in the reasonably near future. Stay tuned for that one. It will probably make a Brew of the Week appearance. Then we have how we kill them. We've talked about how we find what we're looking for, how we stop them from doing what they want to do, how we take care of cleaning up what got through early in the game. Now, how do we close the game out? We're playing a total of seven threats. Four copies of Zareth Sen, the Trickster, which, by the way, is another good card we will be looking more in-depth in at on Budget Spotlight in a future episode. One copy of Lockmere Serpent and two copies of Shark Typhoon. The low threat counts leaves opponents holding dead removal. I can't stress this enough. In particular... When we hard cast our win conditions, none of them die to eliminate. None of them die to the one mana mode of Blood Chief's Thirst. Of the bunch, only Zareth Sand dies to the, the two drop, four damage to a creature, or Planeswalker. So, all the way around, this seems thoroughly reasonable. And in, 
Zareth may be too cute. It may be more correct to just max out on like two serpents, four shark typhoons, and play another land. Or two serpents, three shark typhoons, and a voracious gear shark or something like that. But Zareth often serves to clear a path for something more powerful. If I instep Zareth and you counter it or you kill it, your shields are down and I can untap and just slam a shark typhoon onto the table. And unless you are counter tapping for exactly Ugin in most matchups, it's gonna it's gonna do its job. Plus, if the Zerasan is working, if you're if you're functioning, you're you're not too far behind, you clear the board, you get the Zareth down, and then you get to connect with it. I, I had an unhealthy affection with Ink Eyes Servant of Oni when it was in standard. And Zareth San is just a better Ink Eyes because I can steal your planeswalkers or your lands. Yuck. And then Serpent was chosen over other big dumb flash creatures because Serpent can come back from the graveyard. Meaning it's a decent discard early in the game for Thirst for Meaning. In game one, if they see it in game one, they may board into Soul Guide Lantern play accordingly or you know it's it's kind of rough if they have croxa and they're aggressive about using it but the ability to both hate the graveyard and return the serpent to your hand for the price of two mana like you get to neutralize graveyard based threats and draw a seven seven and the fact that it can become unblockable is relevant as well and then we have how we cast it. 22 lands, including obviously four copies each of Clearwater Pathway and currently Temple of Deceit, although I could be talked into playing uh, Zagoth Triumph or doing a split so that you have the scry early to help you keep hitting land drops and another card to help you mitigate Mana Flood later. But we're also playing... One copy each of Crawling Barons, Castle Lockthwain, and Castle Vantress. And then I genuinely can't remember the numbers on Swamp Island. But I skewed a little bit towards Swamp because I wanted to be able to hit double black for Blood Chief's Thirst. And all but Hagara Mauling of our spell lands are blue. And I think I played all four Fable Passage as well. But with eight spell lands, we're playing 30 potential mana sources, even though we only have 22 lands. And with Solundi Vision, by virtue of our eight spell lands to dig for, we can actually use it to dig for land. I reiterate that because it's really, really, really good. And last but not least, we have the sideboard, which I titled How We Fix It. Two Negate, one Heartless Act, four Hunted Nightmare, two Pestilent Haze, three Duress, two Soul Guide Lanterns of our own, and one Shark Typhoon. Nightmare is part of my on-the-play package. I say on-the-play in air quotes. In matchups where getting on the board first and protecting that lead is going to be valuable, I want to bring in Hunted Nightmare. 
because it can frequently just clock the opponent. It is a 4-5 menace 4-3 that gives your opponent's creature a death touch counter against our deck with 11 removal spells and is it 11? 3, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12 removal spells and all these counters like obviously some of that comes out but the basic premise is still the same right? Or we board down like Zarathan in a matchup where it's less good for Hunted Nightmare and you just slam it on the table and beat them to death with it and it's really good. The rest of the cards serve clearly defined roles. The third, the, the third copy of Heartless Act comes in against bigger creature decks. The Pestilent Hazes come in against low-to-the-ground aggro decks. The Negates come in in actually a lot of matchups. But Duress, Negate, Typhoon are for the Control Mirror. And then if you're on the play, I could... I could justify boarding into Nightmare because you don't have a lot of stuff for their removal anyway. And Lanterns are obviously hedges against Croxa and cards like Call the Death Dweller. But realistically speaking, the thing that's beautiful about this deck and the reason I love it so much is that all of those sideboard slots are basically flex slots. And a lot of the removal spells and counter spells are flex slots. Some of the draw spells are flex slots. The basic premise of keep them from getting too far ahead of you and don't let them bully you in the mid-game is one that we can all agree is something the standard format needs. That's that's not news. That's not that's that's not insanity to say. But Ultimately, the key and the thing that drives this deck home, get it, drives home because I'm in the driveway at home. The, the key that drives this deck home and the reason I like it so much is just how in how flexible it really is. If you want to play more counter spells, less removal, you can. You want to play all removal, no counter spells. Drawgo doesn't mean you have to play a bunch of counter spells. It just means you are answering their threats, keeping them from killing you, and largely doing so during their turn. That's what Drawgo means. And that's okay. That's what this standard format needs more of. Make them work for it. That is the mantra of the Drago player. So, that's all I've got for this week, everybody. Again, thank you for listening. I hope if you decide to pick this deck up, you enjoy it. Uh, this will be one of the last standard-focused episodes I do for a little while, uh, in large part because I am getting tired of having to try to scrape up wild cards to keep building standard decks knowing that either the surrounding pieces are going to get banned in the relatively near future or more pressingly i'm just not going to get a lot of like gameplay value out of them i have not been able to play as much as normal recently so 
I, I want to play more in formats where the knowledge that I've gained from the last time I played isn't lost by the time I get to play again. So with all that out of the way, remember you can find me on Twitter at HomerPathMTG on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain on uh, the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. If you're a patron, you get access to the Patron Pathfinders Discord. And I say all that to jump into our favorite segment at the end of every week. Hashtag MTG Dad Jokes. And we didn't actually have a lot of these. Actually, I only had one of these this week. I think. Yeah. But it was a doozy from our newest patron, Brad, who said this could easily have been named Frat Boy because it has an affinity for parties. And Seagate Colossus, it's a 7-drop, seven 7-5, seven costs one less to cast for each creature in your party. <laughs> Come on. That's great. That is glorious. Thank you, Brad. I enjoyed that. But remember, the last week has taught me anything. We have to be better to each other. So, dealing with people on the web, never be cruel. Never be cowardly. Remember that hate is always foolish. Love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So go forth, build this deck, and try to be kind, because it doesn't feel like you're being very kind to them when you're playing it. And we'll catch you next week.